0: Welcome to season two of the Interacting Minds podcast, Research and Interaction. I'm Arno. And my name is Savannah.
1: And today we invited Meditab Hoybu, anthropologist and clinical researcher at the IMC and the Silkeborg Regional Hospital.
0: She will take us along to the borderlands of living and discuss her research group work at the intersection of research and clinical practice. Welcome, Mede. Thank you. And we're so excited to have you here. So, Mede, you are, I maybe use the word medical anthropologist, and I've been uh, seething through your past uh, (laughs) on our few websites. So you had to start from early on working as an anthropologist within the health and medicine kind of care. Can you take us back of kind of how you got started as a researcher?
2: Yeah, so actually I've always been working uh, as an anthropologist uh, within uh, medicine and healthcare um starting out with uh questions and uncertainties that that came up very close to um uh, my own uh, life and living situations and people that i was around um and one of the spaces that i was uh exploring very early on in my um in my research was concerned with uh the technology of the internet. <laughs> so that was uh, really early uh, research, as you can al- almost uh, imagine. But I was really keen to, uh, to understand how uh, new ways of uh, social interaction that could um, emerge between patients could um, inform their ways of thinking about illness and healing um, and potentially uh, be new venues for empowerment, uh, of patients. Um, so that's what I explored in my very early research and also in my PhD work, um,
0: specifically within cancer, but it's larger than that. And are we thinking here about, so people coming together to share experiences as patients?
2: Or? Yes. So in very, like very early on in internet-based, uh, mailing lists and chat boards and, um, way beyond uh, or before uh, Facebook emerged, uh, so all these kinds of communities that, that, uh, that people basically initiated on their own.
1: For people who might not be familiar with the work of an anthropologist, Mere, uh, what does an anthropologist do in a hospital and why is it important to have anthropologists in hospitals?
2: I guess that's a really excellent question and, and lots of people will probably be, be placing anthropologists somewhere, uh, uh, more exotic and, uh, and, uh, hotter climates or something uh-huh. like that. Um, but actually the project that we'll be diving into today, uh, is really a great example of, um, of why social sciences and humanities and potentially anthropology in particular have a very um should be a very integrated part of clinical research uh because it's a way to engage with questions that are beyond measure uh questions mm-hmm. that are the more hidden experiences of uh of uh, suffering and illness of suddenly losing your capability of language for instance or of uh movement losing Losing certain functions, regaining them again. How um, how this suffering that people may um, encounter completely alters their their sense of self and and body.
1: Hmm. So this project you mentioned is the borderlands of living. Yes. Could we get back to like the origin story of it? (laughs) What is the myth?
2: Yeah, so um maybe I should actually start out by saying that um it's a pro- it's a project that um really outlines this space of uncertainty and ethical dilemmas that become uh present when a person has an injury to the brain and loses their consciousness and after uh, a certain amount of time still doesn't uh provide clear signs of consciousness um, so these are patients who will meet in uh neurointensive care for instance or later on also in more step down care step down units where uh, or neurorehabilitation uh, facilities and a concern and dilemma in these spaces are obviously how you uh pronosticate, so how do you make decisions and informed decisions about uh, the potential of recovery for these patients, of their consciousness and of their function. Um, So there's been a huge amount of of work done uh, within neuroscience over the past uh, 20 years uh, to develop technologies that might improve this uh, consciousness. And one of these technologies uh the functional uh, m r i was making its way into uh an experimental protocol in a hospital that that i'm working at um to see if it could possibly become more uh through the technology, become more uh, clear or less uncertain to distinguish a patient who's in a vegetative state from a patient who's minimally conscious. Um, so as this protocol was making its way into the hospital, um, there was a knock at my door, at my office, uh, from one of the uh, physicians at the intensive care unit and anesthesiologist, who was uh raising questions about the potential ethical dilemmas that also came with this uh, type of research. So would uh, new ways of uh, detecting and measuring consciousness through uh, fMRI um, potentially uh, give um, just kind of a false hope or an anchor to a hope that was really misplaced for relatives of these patients, instead of actually using the clinical attention to help families come to term with uh, withdrawal of care or or palliative care for their uh, loved one. So this was the the kind of dilemmas and questions that he was raising and and asking me to engage with this question um from an anthropological uh
0: perspective.
1: That is a really tough subject.
0: I I I am just kind of jumping right in so your research group entered this space and was a, a, you hired a quite interesting bunch of people I think so it's a, we have a philosopher a cognitive scientist Someone who is an anthropological researcher, but trained in something called micro So And religious studies. And religious studies. So I think (laughs) that interdisciplinarity is at the heart of this. And then you enter the space where you worked with patients, you said with vegetative states, or like who are at a um, mild loss of consciousness. Is that the word you use? Um, Can you describe how these patients look like for someone who might not be familiar?
2: So there is uh, a very particular reason that the clinic is, um, is attentive to the divide between a patient who's in a vegetative state or what's also called, uh, suffering uh, an unresponsive wakefulness syndrome, uh, and then a patient who's in a minimally conscious state because, um, that makes a difference to the, Pronostication in terms of potential for recovery um, so when you're in a vegetative state you're you're awake um, or you can be awake, but you 're not showing signs of awareness uh, so so when you enter the clinical space, the hospital enter the the patient' bedroom um, which was quite. Actually shocking to myself when I went there the first time, you may actually find a patient who's, uh, propped up in bed, uh, with their eyes open and, and potentially staring right at you. Uh, but you only, it only takes you a few seconds to realize that it seems like there's nothing beyond that stare. Like you don't, you usually attend to the person through the gaze of the eyes, and you mm. don't really see anything there but but this person has her eyes open um, so it's a very kind of peculiar uh state um, and the patient will can have cycles of wakeness and sleep like a regular you know s- system through the day would be uh, but and they'll maybe also have basic reflexes like they'll blink if they hear a loud sound or they'll squeeze your hand, but they'll not be able to reproduce this uh, as a sign. So if you ask them to do it again, they'll not be able to process cognitively uh, the
0: the instruction that they
2: were just provided.
0: So as a clinician, I would ask them, like, could you blink to confirm that you've understood that I'm talking to you or to invite kind of certain responses?
2: Yeah. So so a lot of the bedside assessment is done by systematic uh, behavioral um, assessments and scores that you do. They tend to differ a bit uh, in terms of how far along in in the treatment trajectory that a certain patient is. But these are, are behavioral assessments that uh to, to somehow, uh, get a grip of, of the level of consciousness of this patient. So you'll be registering motor and eye movements and you'll be registering also how they, yeah, how they seem to, to register verbal, uh, interaction as well. Um, so it will be like, could you, could you squeeze my hand to, to let me know that you hear me? Or, you know, a clinician will maybe take their coffee cup and <laughs> clink with the spoon or something, something to see if, if the patient seems to react to the sound and kind of, you know, you turn your head towards the sound or something like that.
1: Could you maybe give us a, a more detailed example with respect to anonymity of what a patient in a vegetative state would be?
2: So the patients that we've uh, met in the clinic... Uh, largely had like three reasons for being there. It would be a patient who had suffered a uh, trauma from an accident, um, of any kind, uh, a trauma to the head, uh, most commonly, uh, or it could be a patient who had suffered, uh, a heart attack out of the hospital and, and not received, uh, resuscitation treatment, uh, sufficiently uh, quickly uh, so this patient would have suffered uh, what you would call an anoxic brain injury so this is an injury to the brain due to not obtaining enough oxygen flow um or the patient would uh, have suffered a stroke um or a hemorrhage uh, to the brain uh, yeah so so these would be the reasons and for the patient to arrive at this uh, state of of um, vegetative or minimally uh, conscious, and this will, of course, have certain impacts also on how they would appear. So if you have a patient who has suffered a trauma, you'll probably see a patient with more visible injuries than than a patient who
0: had a stroke, for instance. So your research project came in and was not following the patients that we just discussed, but was following the clinicians. So what was the exact focus in kind of following them and, and what they were doing?
2: Yeah, so we were keen to explore this um um interaction um in the actual clinical space between uh the the signs that were produced through uh neuroscientific technologies, fMRI, MRI, EEG uh, and other technologies that would be brought in to establish um Evidence of consciousness or the lack of mm. consciousness and then the clinical interactions with patients. So these could be the more systematic behavioral assessments that I was just uh, talking about, but also just the pure, um, everyday care situations with patients, uh, where, uh, nurses and therapists would also, um, try to engage the patient in moving a limb or following instructions or uh, just paying really close attention to how um, a patient might uh, behave differently to certain kind of of interactions one day uh, than the next day, for instance, that would give them signs of the patient being more alert or um, something like that. Uh, so we were keen to understand how these Different types of signs of consciousness would, um, would somehow integrate, uh, into what would become, um, prognostications or ideas about the potential of a patient to recover consciousness or recover to a life that, that would,
0: um, be assessed as worth living somehow. Uh, what factors? influenced the doctors in making so they have these behavioral assessments they have some functional brain scans that might allow them to see changes in brain patterns but um did the family did the kind of the surroundings affect them as well definitely definitely uh i mean every patient comes with a
2: story and with a context of environment and family that's uh more or less involved or dedicated to also supporting the, the family. And it's it's very clear that that the the capability of the family to introduce the life story of the patient as well um, and describe certain uh manners or ways that the patient may mm-hmm. have and the, the clinicians can actually um be attentive to uh, was really important, but also just as being social reminders somehow of, uh, of the life lived by this patient and what would constitute also the value system, uh, that this patient had prior to, to the incident, the injury. Um, so, so that's certainly one thing and the, Another thing that's extremely important is also just, uh, the temporality of these types of injuries. And I won't try to establish any kind of, you know, uh, sense that I, you really know, where you would clinicians would put the cutoff points for these, but it's, uh, definitely certain that, that when you see patients in the first few weeks following an injury, you'll still have more, you know, hope to their potential of being able to recover. Um, and if they're very young, you'll say the the, the brain are, has a higher plasticity and we expect them, even though the injury is significant, we expect them to recover better and faster and more. Uh, whereas you'll see as time progresses that, that they'll also be... Uh, Potentially things that were previously, like a month back, registered as a, a potential sign of consciousness. That's not as convincingly a sign any longer because, because you don't have a sense that it's really, um, a, a sign of progression. It hasn't evolved it, no. hasn't evolved. it hasn't evolved. so, so temporality is also a key factor. So so, so in,
0: in a way would it be I twitch my toe in the first week and you think, oh maybe there's a sign and then nine weeks later I still twitch.
2: You still switch your toe and and it's starting to dawn on everyone that you won't really be able to develop functionality uh at the other side of your treatment that would, would really um um you know be something that would that would sustain you as a person. um, And that would be anything that was connected to to what you as a patient or your family perceived of as in line with your values Mm -hmm. of a life
0: worth living. But I think it's super fascinating that this project is not just about understanding a a clinical process, but it's so much more about understanding philosophical topics as Mm -hmm. well. Um, and you have philosoph- like a philosophy team as well. Um, so how do you understand and use this context to understand personhood and consciousness? Because you're really you're entitled the project Borderlands of Living, and I think that's what you're really challenging as well in common models of consciousness.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the spaces where we've been uh, extremely fortunate uh, to work as a very interdisciplinary team Uh and where I certainly have learned uh, a lot from my team also throughout this uh, project, uh, because um, that's definitely one thing that uh, anthropologists do are, uh, um, is to conceptualize things when you see them uh, emerging in an ethnographic uh, fieldwork. You'll, you know, follow the traits and you'll, you'll come up with a conceptualization and and potentially start to to develop theories about things where philosophers work the other way around. Uh, they have the theories and they come up with the problems, so to say. Uh, so in our little team, this has been an extremely kind of fruitful <laughs> meeting space that I would come and think, you know, suggest things about uh, uncertainty, for instance, and then, um, the philosopher would say, but which type of uncertainty? And, and, you know, uncertainty is not just uncertainty. It derives from certain questions or places or, uh, particular dilemmas. Um, and, and that means that we've, we've gotten into investigating, I think, really closely, um, back and forth between uh the empirical observations that we have been doing following these uh clinicians around and and also establishing uh, interactions with with families um if they were present with the with the patient at the bedside and then going back and discussing really uh really um thoroughly, like what is this what is this actually a case of is this a negotiation that somehow develops in the clinic because uh of um an uncertainty with the the uh, measures that were um uh, made whether they were established through neuro uh scientific technologies or or pure clinical observation or is this also influenced by the social process of um, interacting with the families or uh, the, the time that evolves uh, through uh, this process of, of engaging with the patient. Um, so, so in that sense, uh, we've been really fortunate to, to have this uh, very interdisciplinary setup.
1: So we're in a state where we're trying to assess uncertainty but the clinicians are not the only ones dealing with that uncertainty. There are researchers looking at the patients, there are clinicians trying to diagnose them and there are the family waiting for answers about their loved ones. And uncertainty sometimes can be used and how we we What type of information do we choose to share Mm -hmm. with what group also matters? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have any examples of disinformation flow being constricted and being important in the diagnosis of patients?
2: Yes, definitely. One example was a very uh, early example in this project where we followed one of the patients who were uh, undergoing an fMRI uh, scan in this experimental protocol, uh, a patient who had suffered a cardiac arrest and had an anoxic uh, brain injury uh, following this. Um, And the patient had been uh, admitted a few days prior and had undergone the the regular uh, types of behavioral assessment at the bedside by clinicians Who were, uh, sharing with us that they, they were kind of of, um, they were certain that this patient was, uh, in a vegetative state. And, uh, they were uh, really thankful that the, that the family of the patient had agreed, uh, to, um, let the patient undergo this fMRI scan, but they were not expecting any, uh, outcomes of the scans that would change their uh, perception of the the level of consciousness in this patient. Um, They were were pretty firm in their uh, clinical assessment, but they were hopeful that this type of technology could be something that would actually uh, facilitate uh, new types of conversations with the families in particular. If you were moving towards, uh, withdrawal of, of treatment or, uh, for instance, then you could say, this is what we see at the bedside. And now we also have these images, you know, to, to show you that there is really no response when we
0: mm-hmm.
2: do, uh, have this stimulation from, from sound, for instance, um, in this, um, in this particular project. Um, so, uh, so, so actually there was a kind of a degree of certainty there to the assessment that they had made and, and that they would be giving to the families as well. Uh, but what happened, uh, when the analysis came back from this scan and, uh, what was happening throughout the scan was that the neuroscientists, uh, producing the scan were watching these images and getting increasingly frustrated that the patient was moving. There was all kinds of uncertainties introduced throughout the scan because these are really difficult patients to have, you know, you can't ask them to lie still in in the scanner. Um, So there was an amount of uncertainties emerging there. And then actually uh, to much surprise when the analysis came back. It was possible to establish that that at a certain point there had be- been a response detected uh, from the patient to this uh, paradigm. So that introduced then, as the scientists uh, shared this um, outcome of the scan with the clinicians, a completely new uncertainty into their uh, assessment. Um, and they even spoke about it like this gives me the chills like what should we like how should we then navigate this now what should we share with the family they're coming in the afternoon you know uh would we uh let them see these images and they're talking they're asking about the results um and uh, and how should we go about this should we then um decide to sustain treatment uh because we see this response or should we carry out carry on with the with the previous assessment that we had. Um, and in the end, uh, in this particular uh situation, the the clinicians decided not to share the results uh of this scan with the families because they were um concerned that that uh this potential that the response could produce with the families were really not aligned with what they were assessing and seeing at the bedside so in that sense um that it would just create more uh, despair or misplaced hope than than actual certainty with the family
1: yeah, maybe we should also precise that a brain response doesn't always mean a, yeah. yes. a conscious conscious yes. response
0: that's that's a very good uh, precision to make but it also opens up this like what you just described this dichotomy between this idea that if we develop better techniques we will talk to some of your group members soon about um explainable ai and the kind of opportunities for prognostic tools through machine learning mm-hmm. um here it's an instance of using brain imaging To try to get better tools, but that can actually, in this case, introduce more uncertainty than less, which I think intuitively I would assume, Oh, this is going to help great to make better predictions. But in this case, you're describing exactly the opposite. It's creating even more facets of uncertainty. Yeah, definitely.
2: And I think that's, I mean, that's why, uh, there's this ongoing discussion, uh, and, and also huge (laughs) amounts of, uh, financing. Moving towards developing these new uh, prognostic technologies because it would be such a relief if we could produce more certain and clear evidence on the state of consciousness of these patients, um, to either support them really early on towards, uh, early steps for neurorehabilitation or to make better, uh, palliative Care um, uh, provision for them and their families, um, but it seems as you as you point out that that the technologies, for now at least, uh, are at a state where the uncertainty is is definitely not decreased.
1: So it seems like we have a vision of what consciousness is, and we have to make a binary assessment for patients, and we want to develop new tools to help us. But those new tools invite us to redefine how we perceive consciousness
2: yeah and I think that's actually one of the things that you'll probably also be be touching on in in uh, in further um, conversations with with the group members of this project that that we're definitely seeing that that the model of consciousness that that the clinic is also working with, and that that uh, neuroscience has been working with in terms of thinking about consciousness as a level, uh, as a continuum, is is probably uh, um, could probably be helped by thinking taking on some of the ideas from philosophy, for instance, where consciousness is is increasingly. Uh, thought of in terms of dimensions, that that there are certain dimensions of consciousness that, that emerge in certain situations and not necessarily in others. Uh, so a much more dynamic
0: and flexible um, sense of consciousness. I think it's super interesting. You described at the beginning that this was actually the onset of the project, someone coming to your space, like a clinician colleague saying, we need your help. Um, we're exactly struggling with what you just described. It's, uh, we're introducing uncertainty into families and in our own decision-making. Mm-hmm. That is really, we don't know how to navigate, even though we're excited about maybe the new adventures and tools we're about to develop. Where do you see your own role and that of your research group within that space? So you work with clinicians, with families, with patients, and you're kind of the linking point or kind of following mm-hmm. the linking point.
2: Yeah, I think... uh what we're contributing uh, to the discussion with this, uh, with this research is really um, to facilitate reflection, uh, which we're doing in another side project that's developing uh, from this also um, on how consciousness is also a matter of perspective. So, where do you actually uh, where do you uh try to establish consciousness from if you're uh investigating consciousness from the neuroscientific perspective uh you'll be looking for responses or you'll be looking for um, um for processes in the brain uh that that you can um, model or or give some kind of imagery uh somehow and if you're looking from the clinician bedside, you'll be, uh, engaging the, the different signs you see from, uh, movements the patient make or, or eye contact or whatever, uh, that will be changing. But if you're looking from the family perspective, you'll be looking for the, the person you knew, uh, the signs that there is still someone there that, that I recognize as my husband or father or mother or sister, um, so these perspectives make consciousness in particular, but also in very different ways. And this is, I think, an important thing to consider uh, when you're also trying to communicate with families about uh what the potential for recovery is, that it's not just a matter of a binary, is consciousness present or not, but also what are the the consequences of the ways in which we we establish this and how how far does that potential go in terms of of reconnecting with this patient and and establishing a life
0: i guess also i'm imagining it very hard to be part of the family so the strain so this is not a strain just on an individual but a whole social group so Mm -hmm. I'm imagining the families you follow, that it's a huge strain on their lives to disconnect with the person that they know so well in a way over time.
2: Definitely. And I, and I think I can't start to imagine what, what that must be like. Uh, and that's another thing that strikes you when you enter the hospital bedroom where the patient is that you'll often see a board uh beside the, the bed or at the end of the bed with all these photos that, that the family bring in to uh signal to the patient, to the, the clinicians, to themselves, like what was this this person when they were with their grandchildren or uh hiking in in the mountains or whatever uh prior to this um injury
1: uh, I think it'd be interesting to get back to the ethnographic methods. So how did you investigate uh, in the hospital this relationship between the patients, the families, the clinicians? Did you send a little anthropologist to follow one clinician? Did they ask questions to the family?
2: Mm. Yeah, so uh, we were very um, sensitive in our work to the fact that the patient was not able to consent to us being there Uh um so we would uh inform the patient that we were in the room in the same way as clinicians do when they enter the room they say uh good morning it's this uh time of the day and it's this day of the week and you're here and i'm this person and now this is what's uh supposed to go on. And then we would say, and I'm also in the room, and my reason for being here is because I'm curious to what goes on and how um what are the interactions around you. Um but then our focus actually moved in in the you know the way that it's possible to, to move this focus but moved to the connections and how uh therapists and nurses and doctors around the the patient were interacting with the patient engaging the patient and doing this interpretation and negotiations of the signs of consciousness that they saw um and a key factor to this uh and to study this ethnographically is to spend time there so in that sense yes we were uh present in the clinic um most commonly following a particular nurse or therapist or a doctor around through their shift, uh, whether this was uh, early morning or in the middle of the night or um, during during daytime uh following them as they did their rounds uh, taking part or you know. Being beside them as they, they discussed what they were seeing with, uh, colleagues and, um, attending conferences or meetings that they were attending to discuss patient cases or, um, things like this to get a sense of how they would, uh, describe the signs that they were seeing and also, uh, argue for the, for the value or, uh, or less potential of certain
0: signs or interactions. And you're, together with your team, wrote this beautiful paper that we're going to link in the show notes uh, where you have these memo snippets so, um your colleagues and you're describing little descriptions of how the clinicians were interacting. And we're not talking just doctors here, but there's a lot of examples of nurses. And um, I was really intrigued how you also described their characteristics. So... Um, who they were as people as well. So it wasn't just focused on the clinician or the patient, but also there's, I don't know, little snippets of uh, character glimpsing through those descriptions.
2: Yeah, and that's obviously, from our perspective, a thing that's really important to uh, what we see and how we also interpret uh, what we see, because uh, spending time in the clinic also as a as a health professional with these patients is not something that happens in a professional void. It's something that's also um, characterized by your own context. So if you're a young mother and you work there as a nurse and you see another young mother coming in, for instance, with uh, a serious injury, you... um, i think you reflect back um you know ways of interacting with your own children or with your the hopes and dreams you had for you have for your own life into this uh into this person and this creates a different type of attentiveness to to the care and the signs and the the really really uh sincere hope you have that this person will make it and will regain a level of function uh, that will make interaction and participation in life possible again.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's really this way consciousness is evaluated through the interaction and the interaction we have with the patient depends on how we conceptualize the person, the personhood that we attribute to the person. Yeah. I guess it's even more uh, poignant to the families, uh, as you mentioned earlier, when they bring little items and tokens of the life of the person to remind everyone of who that person is. I might be rambling a little bit, but it makes me think somehow of the anthropological work on slavery and how it is possible to objectify a human. Once you take that human out of their entire social context, mm. so they have no life anymore because you took them away from that life, and you can do atrocious things mm. because of that.
2: Mm. Um, yeah, and I'm thinking. I mean, I'm assuming that what you're saying here is that 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 all these processes that the families have, and obviously that they're encouraged to have uh by by the health professionals to bring in photos or to bring you know your sister's favorite slippers or uh or a scarf or something that that made her you know uh appear more like herself and mm. potentially if she has this sensation it will Make her feel more comfortable. That these are all ways that that produce and reproduce the person somehow, even in this clinical setting, and that reminds everyone of of who they are. Um, so you'll also see the family bringing in favorite foods that the patient might have, or elderberry flower syrup that that you know she had a particular liking for. Uh, is something that the Op- occupational therapists will then use as a, a more systematic tool also in their interaction with the patient to see if does this bring out something else uh, than just ordinary lemonade, for instance.
1: I guess what happens is a patient doesn't have that social support. Mm. They don't have a family. Or...
2: I'm sure that has an impact. I mean, I've only seen clinicians who are extremely dedicated to providing the best assessments and care um, throughout uh, the patient trajectory at their specific uh department. Um, so I'm not in any way <laughs> suggesting that they are, are not able to provide this without the families, but we just see that the way in which the families are uh, Reminds and are actually the only ones to remind us in the clinical space of who this person was and, and how they, you know, how they perceived of life and, and how this little twitch that they may have, you know, beside the eye that you're potentially are overlooking is actually a reaction that they always did when they were uncomfortable or something is. A huge support to the clinicians in, in interpreting and understanding what's, what's important. Um, so, so it's definitely, um, important to have them involved. In and I, and I think everyone in,
0: in intensive care is, is keenly, uh, aware of this. So it's very clear, I think, from your descriptions also. And I think it's going to come out as well from our conversations with, um, Bess, Lisa, Marine, Alberta in the coming weeks that, um, What you're taking away from this fieldwork is really clinicians who are really trying. And I think the starting point really shows this well by someone coming in and saying, I'm really worried about how this will affect us and the families and and the patients as well. And how can we learn? And what a kind of, because this is a special situation for us on the podcast, because we're going to dig deeper into your findings. So kind of asking you about what are the findings is almost a spoiler into the coming episodes. But uh, what would you like people to take away from this episode and from your work?
2: So I think, um, a key thing is that, that uncertainty is really a condition in life and in medicine that, uh, that we do not conquer by technology. Um, but that we have to be keenly aware of how we are finding different ways to manage. Um, and technology may be a tool, a managing tool, but it's not, uh, an answer that negates the the uncertainty um and that that this uncertainty is also situated uh and dynamic um and influencing the trajectory of patients uh differently along the way uh, so the decisions uh that are made um around patients are really uh, outcomes of these negotiations of signs um uh, and the pieces of knowledge in the clinic that emerge in different ways and through different types of technologies uh, at the bed at the bedside uh, most commonly, uh, but that they are really dynamic and not stable um, and that these um, this is both uh, a very hopeful message in terms of of patients actually being able to develop and recover consciousness. Uh, but also that that it's really important to to pay attention to this uncertainty as also a space in which the values of the patient that the families are able to bring in to um, assess and and debate with uh, the clinician in terms of the decisions to make are really uh, highly important.:
1: And that was a great point. Thank you, Mede.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is so wonderful to have you. And um, in the coming weeks, we will learn more about Borderlands of Living and talk to Mede's three colleagues, Albert Seberg, uh, Lise-Marie Andersen and Bess Boltzbjerg about personhood, consciousness and a bit kind of more details into the projects. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. This podcast is edited and produced by Kirsi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermier, and Savannah Scholz. Music by Simon Kark. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.